Okay, so last week we were able to finish the book of Revelation, and I'm happy to say that the entire study from beginning to end, which, as of course you know, ran to 39 weeks, came just under, or just around 21 hours, which makes it the second longest study to date. Before I got to uh, Revelation, I was able to work my way through uh, the book of Acts, which of course ran to 59 weeks, which you may well remember, and in total that gave me around 26 hours of material. It was a great blessing to look at Revelation, and it was a great blessing to look at Acts the Apostles before that. And of course, if you joined us during our study of Acts before that, I was in 1 Corinthians. And if you were to say to me, well, James, what is or which book is the hardest to teach in the New Testament? Might it be Matthew? And I would say no. And you might say to me, uh, might it be uh, Revelation? And I would say no. And you might say to me, uh, would it be uh, Hebrews? And I would say no. And you might say to me, how about uh, Romans? And I would say no. I would say to you that the hardest book in the New Testament for me to read through and teach is going to be Second Corinthians. In fact, go to Second Peter. I want to open with a verse from Second Peter to hopefully give you some idea as to how the apostles, excluding Paul, thought about Paul and his writings. Second Peter, Second Peter, look at chapter three, please, and cast your eye over verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found in him in peace without spots and blameless. Concerning the judgment seats of the Lord, of course, 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are learned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Our beloved Paul has been given great wisdom, of course, he went to the third heaven, and he speaks of things which are hard to be understood, middle part of verse 16, comma, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, like the Judaizers, like false brethren, as they also do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. He's saying several things. Number one, he's saying that Paul's writings are on par with the Old Testament writings, like all of the Old Testament books. He's saying that people are able to twist his writings, which of course they do, and some of the worst people to twist his writings will be the Muslims, in fact, just yesterday we were doing some street work and two Islamic uh, gentlemen came over to us and they were trying to comprehend how Jesus could be the son of God and God. And we had maybe a 10 minute conversation with these two Islamic gentlemen. They weren't uh, hostile. They were somewhat uh, smug, somewhat dismissive as to what we were telling them, which is to be expected, of course. Behind them, there were 10 Mormons and not far from these ten Mormons were two Jehovah's Witnesses. Talk about a mishmash. It was very much like Mars Hill. And if you were to go over to the Muslims or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses and ask them about such passages as this, they would uh, twist them. They would twist them to their own damnation. And I said to these two Islamists that 
Number one, until you are born again, this book is a closed book to you. Number two, until you are born again, you will never comprehend even the basic elements of Scripture. And I said also that you weren't told to understand the triunity of the Lord or Christ having two natures, but you were told to believe such an account. So here, Second Peter three fourteen to sixteen makes it very clear that Paul's writings are difficult to understand. And Peter has written Second Peter. Peter was up on the mount. Peter was the first and the last of the apostles. He was the closest to the Lord, excluding John, of course. He would deny the Lord, and of course, you know, would be restored. So, if Peter, a saved man, around the same age as Paul around the same age as Jesus, if he was of the opinion that Paul's writings, let's give him 14 epistles, were difficult to understand, then don't be too surprised if I find some of his writings difficult to understand. So turn to Second Corinthians, if you will, and what I will attempt to do over the next, let's see now, uh, 26 weeks, I've worked out this book is 13 chapters and if I spend two weeks per chapter it will give me or it'll take me around 26 weeks to complete which is around six months and once I finished second once I finish uh, second Corinthians Lord willing I would then go to Philemon or Philemon depending on how you wish to pronounce it and then after that I will have finished the New Testament and then I will work my way through the Old Testament, no doubt from the open-air pulpit every seven days or every ten days, and then see what the Lord shows me during every Lord's Day service. Also, what I want to do as we work through 2 Corinthians over the next 26 weeks or thereabout, don't quote me, it may take less, it may take longer, I want to try and do some word studies And what I want to also do very quickly is give you some key verses to jot down. These are going to be the key verses that you want to look at in your own time. And the first uh, batch of key verses will be 2 Corinthians 2.10-11. 2 Corinthians 2.10-11. Chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. Chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. Chapter 4, verses 17 to 18 uh, chapter 6 verse 3 to 10 chapter 7 verse 1 uh, chapter 7 verse 10 chapter 10 verse 3 to 6 chapter 10 verse 17 to 18 chapter 11 verse 23 to 27 chapter 12 verse 7 to 10 chapter 13 verse 4 and chapter 13 verse 9 One more time, in case you missed these verses. Chapter 2, 10 to 11. Chapter 2, 10 to 11. 4, 8 to 10. 4, 17 to 18. Uh, 6, 3 to 10. 7, 1. 7, 10. 10, 3 to 6. 10, 17 to 18. 11, 23 to 27. 12, 7 to 10. 13.4 and 13.9 and I sat down late last night and read the entire epistle in one go which is always a way to go especially when it comes to 
teaching the scripture. It's one thing to read the scripture. It's something very different to teach the scripture. And the more I read the scripture in preparation of teaching the scripture, the more I realize how deep this book is. And therefore, I will take my time and care. Also, the three words to sum up Second Corinthians will be service, sufferings, sacrifice. Or sacrifice, sufferings, service. Acts of the Apostles lays out the ministry of the Apostles. And like I say, when I went through Acts last year, I think it was now, I think it is now, it took me 59 weeks from start to end. And probably 90% of what you read in Acts of the Apostles was just for the Apostles. Very little doctrine. You can take application, of course, from Acts of the Apostles, but when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to practical stuff, you will have to go. You will need to go to the Pauline epistles, because Paul, of course, is our timeless apostle, and his epistles are exclusively for the church. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter 1, let's start, if we may, in verse 1, please. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A very typical start to a Pauline epistle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. It was God's will to anoint the Apostle Paul. It was God's will to commission the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to round up Christians. He was a zealot. He was uh, full of rage. He had a lot of zeal, but little knowledge. And according to uh, John chapter 16, was an unsaved man. According to John 16, he was like Muhammad. He thought he was doing the Lord a service, uh, a good work. And in reality, he was on the wrong side of the Lord. He was on the wrong side of history. So Paul, an apostle, meaning someone who was sent. And incidentally, we have no apostles for today. We have no prophets for today. For today, we have the scripture, number one, as our final authority. Number two, we have teachers to teach the scripture. And number three, we have Christ's finished atonement. During the life and death of the apostles, they were receiving revelations from the Lord, much like men back in the Old Testament would experience. But by the end of the first century, the entire New Testament was written. And once the entire New Testament was written and passed around, you had everything you needed. You were complete in Christ. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, concerning your salvation. And you were complete in Christ. First Timothy chapter 3, Concerning the scriptures, you are completely self-sufficient. You are autonomous if you are born again. So it was the will of the Lord to anoint Paul to become an apostle. And as always, he mentions at least one associate, Timothy, our brother, who was mentioned from Acts 16, Acts 17. And from memory, he had an unbelieving father. His father was a Greek. His father was a Gentile. His mother was a Jewish woman. His grandmother was a Jewish woman. His mother was saved. His grandmother was saved. But Timothy was somewhat of a backslider, shall we say, before he was saved. Meaning this, that he was never circumcised. And Paul took him 
And to this day, what Paul would do is still somewhat controversial. He took a grown man, probably 25, 30 or thereabouts, and circumcised him to show the Jews that Timothy was a lover of Jehovah, a faithful Jew to the children of Israel, and also with the hope with the anticipation that Timothy would be able to reach out to the Jews. Well, that was partly successful, and yet, on the other hand, it didn't make a huge difference, because the Jews, like today, for the most part, were anti-Jesus. They were anti-the Messiah. They were very difficult to uh, rule over back in the Old Testament, and when the apostles began to operate in the New Testament, it was very difficult for them. They were very much up against it. He goes on to say, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, church in the singular. Now, we know from Matthew uh, 18 that where two or three meet, and also Matthew chapter 20, Christ is with us. He's there in the midst of us. We don't need to meet in the hundreds or the thousands. And here, the term the church in the singular is going to denote or it's going to uh, explain all of the groups in Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. You had more than just one church in Greece. If you went to Corinth or Achaia, latter part of verse 1, I guarantee you there would have been dozens of houses, maybe two dozen, maybe three dozen houses. I went to Israel back in 2002, 2003, and I can still remember now uh, visiting places like Capernaum, and they had some excavations, which they were very happy to show us. And you saw just how small some of those homes were. And for the early church, they were Gentile. They met, worshipped, and broke bread in people's homes. If you were a Jew in the first century that believed in Jesus, you probably turned your synagogue over to a church. In fact, James's epistle speaks about if a man comes into your assembly... And if you look at the Texas Receptus, the word behind assembly is synagogue, because the synagogues became churches, whereas the Gentiles, not Jews, of course, wouldn't have been welcomed into synagogues, hence where they met in people's homes. So the church singular, denoting the body of Christ, and yet geographically in reference to Achaia, in reference to Corinth, in reference to Greece. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to be saved, grace to keep you saved, and grace to get you through your entire Christian life. Go back to what I just said. This epistle, if I was to try and sum it up in three words, would concern service, sufferings, sacrifice. Once you get saved, wonderful you are saved, but that's just the beginning. It's like if you enroll into the British Army. You spend several weeks being assessed, trained, and if you pass your tests, if you pass your exams, you are then soon deployed overseas. And, of course, you know what happens once you go overseas. You have to fight. You have to dig down deep. You may have to kill. Now, for those of us which are saved, we don't kill people, of course. We don't fight people, of course. In fact, as we go through this very tricky book. Paul will tell you to make sure that everything that comes your way is dealt with through the mind. What comes as a distraction needs to be dealt with through the mind. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father. He's not your father until you are saved. 
Never mind what these ecumenical people say. He's only your father once you are born again. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not your Lord until you are born again. God is very exclusive. And the way he operates is very different to how we operate. We might think we're very graceful and very gracious to other people. And yet when you look at how the Lord operates in people's lives, we don't even come halfway near his mercy. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 is very typical. Paul wants you to know that he's an apostle. He wants you to know that he has been called, chosen and anointed via the Lord. He didn't choose himself. He didn't anoint himself. In fact, no one laid hands on him to become an apostle. If you speak to Catholics, they believe that the Pope is Christ's vicar on earth and he chooses his cardinals and only he chooses his cardinals. You won't find any church anywhere in the world that has any say in who their cardinal is. In fact, you can't even fire a cardinal. You can't fire a bishop, much like a member of parliament. You try and fire your local uh, member of parliament, good luck, it won't happen. There was a bill in the House of Commons last year which was introduced to try and make it easier for people like us, members of society, to fire our members of parliament, and surprise, surprise, it was defeated. You have no say whatsoever as to uh, how good your MP is. Sure, you can vote him or her out, but you try and fire him. You try and fire her. Very difficult. And so is the case when it comes to trying to fire a cardinal, trying to fire a bishop. My point is this. The early church were very much a Jewish group, very much based in Jerusalem, and they had no say over Paul's commission, anointing. They had no say over Paul's invitation into their fold. Christ would completely bypass them, like he would do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist arrives on the scene, very uncontroversial, very uh, unusual, shall we say, not necessarily uh, conventional. If you were to see him, you'd probably cross the streets. He may be somewhat intimidating to observe, to speak with, and yet the Lord chose him. On top of that, he was the Lord's cousin. Christ completely bypassed organized religion, which the more I think about it, the more sh uh, shocked I am that organized religion com uh, continues to expand out. Mm. You've got thousands of priests in the Catholic Church. I mean, tens of thousands all over the world performing masses seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And yet, if I understand scripture clearly, they're not needed. You may have a billion Catholics around the world, although I would dispute that number, who go to Mass maybe once a week, once a month, or at least twice a year for Christmas and Easter, and they are very much of the belief that their priest or priests can intercede for them. Of course, we know that Christ is our mediator. We know that Christ is our high priest. We know that Christ is our everything. On top of that, he is our older brother. And it just sometimes shakes me. It shocks me. It devastates me to see these people giving their lives to such a system i counted 10 mormons yesterday like i say in my town i would suggest they were in their 20s boys and girls i would suggest they were probably american but i didn't speak to them and i would suggest that they were born into such a religion and i would suggest that their parents are mormons and therefore their parents are paying for them to be deployed to the uk they will spend two years on active service and during their time overseas, 
their parents pay for their costs, so on and so forth. They are of the opinion that outside of their church, there's no salvation. And if you ask such people how to be saved, they can't answer you. They will say, well, come to our steakhouse tonight. Or if you ask a Jehovah's Witness how to be saved, they will say, well, come to our kingdom hall tonight or tomorrow. Or if you ask Muslims how to be saved, they will say, well, first of all, become a Muslim. Pray five times a day. Do this, do that. And if you ask a Catholic how to be saved, they will say, well, get yourself baptized. Take your first communion. Go to confession. Do this, do that. And you might, you might die in a state of grace. And that's the quickest way to decide whether or not someone is on the level or not. If you would have asked me how to be saved, I could tell you in 10 seconds. And I would tell you how I got saved, why I got saved, and when I got saved. Look at verse 3, please. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You're going to suffer. There's no way around it. You will suffer the moment you get saved. And even if you don't live for the Lord, I guarantee you, you will suffer because you are born again. In fact, somebody very kindly sent me a DVD called The Hiding Place, which I watched last night. It's a true story about uh, Cory Ten Boom and her sister. And I watched this uh, true story made back in the 1970s. And it's about a family in Holland back in the 1940s, a middle-class Christian family who found themselves at the mercy of the Nazis. And, of course, if you know history, one of the first groups that the Nazis rounded up were the Jews. And this very decent family, I don't know what their denomination was, wanted to open their home as a refuge to Jews. And you had Coy and her sister Betsy. You had a brother and an elderly father. Decent family, quite likely saved. I don't know what their denomination was, but I watched this true story, like I say, and the film begins with the Jews being rounded up, like I say, and this family decide to open their home to the Jews, and the pastor arrives to meet the family, a complete waste of time he was, and he was very critical of them. He said, listen, you have to obey the laws, which is true. And yet, at the same time, if the laws clash with Scripture, you go with Scripture, of course. And during this scene of the pastor in their very large home, which I believe is still in Holland to this day, a child had been uh, induced into the scene, a few days old, a Jewish child. And what had happened was the Jews knew that this family were helping them, and they wanted this uh, good, godly family to take this Jewish child to get it to safety, so on and so forth. And this pastor arrives in their home and they say to the pastor, please take the child with you. You have a nice big home in the country. And he says, forget it. I won't do it. And I thought, once again, clergy and laity, such a waste of time. And they said, okay, fair enough. And he was no help to them whatsoever. And he left the room. And uh, one of the girls, I think it may have been Betsy or Corrie, said, may God forgive him. And the father said, well, never mind him. We will keep the child and we will get the child to safety. Well, during the next year or two, I would suggest dozens of Jewish men and women and children went through their home and lived in their home, were fed in their home. In fact, there's a scene in the film where they have to sneak bricks into the home. They have to sneak uh, paint into the home uh, via milk bottles. 
And you've got builders going to the home and building rooms within rooms where the Jews could hide. All true. You can check it out online. And of course, as the story progresses, somebody somewhere betrays them. In fact, there's a scene in the film where Corrie goes to visit the chief of police, a Dutchman, and he's sympathetic to her. And he says to her, I want to give you a name of a man who is a traitor and he betrays people to the Gestapo. And I want you to give this name to your friends, meaning the Dutch underground resistance. And she knew straight away what that would mean. It would mean that they would find him and kill him. And she said to the uh, chief of police, sympathetic, perhaps a closet Christian, I don't know, that she couldn't do it. Because she knew that if she was to do it, this man would be found dead. They would kill him, of course. And she wasn't prepared to be responsible uh, for his death. So she gave the note back to him and he ripped it up. And maybe uh, 10, 15 minutes later, this guy who was named in the film, turns up on her doorstep and goes on to betray them. I'll condense this a bit more if I may. They find themselves in a concentration camp, a women's concentration camp, and it's hard, hard labour. They are suffering. Betsy is in very poor health. Corrie loses a lot of weight. She really does uh, struggle in this uh, death camp. In fact, I would suggest that Betsy was the strongest of the two. We all know about Corrie, Ten Boom, but I think Betsy was the stronger of the two. They are praying in this concentration camp. They are reading their Bibles in this concentration camp. They are leading women to Christ in this concentration camp. And I often ask myself, how would I have survived in such an environment? Would I have been a beacon to the Lord or would I have kept my mouth shut? I sometimes wonder I may come back and discuss more of that movie shortly. But verse 3, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless him, worship him, adore him. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who will comfort us in all our tribulation. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You look at Christ, you see a man leaving heaven, leaving his throne, coming to earth, dying in a very remote part of Israel. His mother would give birth to him in very difficult situations, very difficult circumstances. From his conception to crucifixion, he was hated. And I believe that when she gave birth to the Lamb of God, that the devil wasn't far away. He certainly wasn't far away from the cross. And from his conception to crucifixion, it was very difficult I mean, talk about service, talk about sufferings, talk about sacrifice. He's the man to mark if you want to follow a man. And yet you try and live like he lived. It won't be very easy. In fact, I will suggest to you and I will suggest to you on record that it's pretty much impossible. But the point is this. We go through what we go through. Number one, to glorify the Lord. Number two, to help others to understand why uh, things occur the way they occur. I remember doing some street work maybe three years ago and this lady came over to me and she had lost one of her children and she started to explain to me how her child was murdered. I can't understand that. I can't relate to that. And I'm on the street corner. It's a very busy street corner. People going back and forth. It's a pretty nice day and I'm speaking to this woman in her 50s. Not bitter, but still very emotional, as you would imagine, very raw. 
and she's telling me about her child that was murdered who died very young and I'm trying to explain why such a thing takes place. In fact, there was a statement made in this movie called The Hiding Place. Why does God allow suffering? If he can stop it and doesn't, he is a sadist. If he cannot stop it, he is impotent. And the uh, question was put forward to Betsy and her sister, Corrie, what's going on? Why are we here? Well, they couldn't answer that question because to be fair to Corrie and Betsy, they weren't theologians. They were two spinsters, uh, middle class, very uh, godly, very spiritual people. And they couldn't answer the question. But what I would have said had I been there is number one, well, first of all, you are here because you're all sinners, we're all sinners. Number two, we are all here because the Lord is angry with the wicked every day and hates all workers of iniquity. And number three, we are here, like the saved people, like Betsy and her sister Corrie, to preach to you, to show you Christ's sufferings. I mean, he suffered for us. He died for us. He bled for us. He wept over our sins. So if he did that for us, we may have to do the same for him. Not necessarily to the extreme that Corey and Terry, excuse me, Corey and Betsy went through, but perhaps near. Or if you think of people like David Brainard, who died less than 30 years old back in the 18th century. Or perhaps if you think of Eric Little, who died in a, a concentration camp run by the Japanese in China. Those people suffered. Those people set an example because they were born again. So when you go through these trials and tribulations, and I've given you some extreme ones I know, God is able to comfort us, verse 4, in all our tribulation and in any trouble that we go through. Because God, in the person of Jesus, has already suffered for us. He's already gone to hell and back. And I mean literally. He went into the ground. And it says he went into the lowest parts of the earth. He went into hell itself. Not to be tortured. Not to be born again. That's a lot of nonsense. He went into hell, and I mean hell, to preach to the captives, to preach victory to the demons, the devils. He may have gone into Tarsus as well. He may have gone into where those unclean and fallen spirits are chained up until this present moment and preached to them as well. And whilst he was in hell, and I mean hell, he would set captivity captive. So when it comes to suffering, he knows all about it. When it comes to Trials and tribulations, he knows all about it. He would taste death for every man. Look at verse 5, please. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Consolation, in the sense of, uh, he was a great uh, help to me. He consoled me. He was able to comfort me. In fact, consolation means, in essence, to comfort Comfort received after a loss or disappointment. A source of such comfort. You want to console someone. Perhaps a woman has lost a child. Perhaps uh, someone has been diagnosed with a sickness. Perhaps someone has lost their job. You're going to console them. You want to offer them consolation. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, because Christ lives in us, you are allowed to be saved. You are given the right or the privilege to be saved but once you are saved you now suffer for him and nobody wants to suffer nobody wants to go through the mill nobody wants to really be up against it and yet that is what is going to happen 
so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. So we go uh, into a trial and tribulation. We suffer for Christ because Christ lives within us. And our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. He brings us through it. Verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Salvation not concerning everlasting life that comes via the Saviour. Salvation concerning everyday life. Salvation concerning the preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin or loss. Salvation in the sense of being saved from physical or external harm, not everlasting life. And also from verse 6, And whether we be afflicted, and we will, it is for your consolation and salvation to help you to understand what people go through, to help me to try and understand what this woman who lost one of her children through murder, had gone through, and yet I didn't really understand what she had gone through, but I think I was able to offer her some comforts. I was able to perhaps console her to some extent, which is effectual, helpful, in enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So if you've never been through life, if you've never experienced any pain or hardship, you won't be much help to someone who has. And if you do street work, and you speak to people who have really gone through all sorts of problems, you can't relate to them. And that's why most theologians don't go into the streets. Most pastors don't go into the streets. Most academics don't go into the streets because they can't relate to the average man or woman on the street. They're too busy writing their books. They're too busy preparing their sermons. They're too busy preparing their papers, their dissertations. They don't know what it's like to live in the real world. They've never had to struggle with a mortgage. Or maybe some of them have, but not many. Once they become established, once they start making a lot of money, once they have maybe three, four, five hundred people in their church, or a thousand or two, they're set for life. They can't relate to people that I'm speaking about this morning. They can't relate to homeless people. In fact, I was speaking to a guy last year, he came over to me, and he said to me, would I give him some train fare to go and visit his daughter? And I said to him, what's the story? And he said, well, I'm currently homeless, which I could see. I'm not a drinker, I'm not a drug addict, which I believe him to be, uh, you know, be telling me the truth when he said that. And I said to him, well, what do you need from me? And he said, well, my daughter lives at such and such a place. I need some train fare to go and visit her. And I said to him, I tell you what, do me a favor first. I said, go down to this particular church, which is open in the week, a very big church, a very wealthy church, and just tell them what you've told me. I'll be here for another 20 minutes or so. And he didn't want to do it, but he did do it. And he walked down to the local church. And I carried on giving out tracts, speaking to people. And about 20 minutes later, he came walking towards me very, you know, gingerly. And I could see that he wasn't particularly happy. And I said to him, how did you get on? And he said, well, it's pretty tough. He said, uh, I told them what you wanted me to tell them. I explained my situation to them. And they weren't interested in what I had to, you know, what I wanted to do. They weren't particularly very helpful. And I thought to myself, surprise, surprise. And I said to him, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you're here in five minutes' time, I'll go up to the train station with you and I'll buy you a train ticket. And he said to me, really? And I said, yes, really. Well, he came back five minutes later with one of his friends and he said to me, uh, change of plan. I said, oh, yeah. He said, yes. He said, uh, I've just met up with my buddy and we're going to go back to his house, have a meal. 
And I, you know, observed these two for a few minutes. He said, uh, can you give me six pounds? Just six pounds? I said, what for? He said, well, my friend needs some money for the meter. He's out of juice, meaning electricity. And I said, okay. And I'm watching these two guys. One's in his 30s, the other's in his 50s. They've hit hard times. And I'm having to make a split decision, which these pastors don't have to make, which these theologians don't have to make, which these academics don't have to make. And I said to this guy, if I give you six pounds, do you promise me that you won't buy alcohol? Do you promise me that you won't buy drugs? Do you promise me that you won't waste it? And he promised me. And I looked him in his eyes and I said, okay, if you promise me that this money will buy electricity, I will give you six pounds. And that's what I did. And he thanked me very much, turned around and walked off. Now, I was able to offer him some comfort. I was able to relate to him when it came to hardships. And by the way, I don't do that very often. By the way, I normally don't give people money. But I weighed this guy pretty quickly. I made a decision. Maybe I was right. Maybe I was wrong. I don't know. You know, all that I have is, is uh, of the Lord. It all belongs to the Lord. But I've been through difficult situations and I was able to relate to him. And that's why we as Christians go through difficult situations so we can help those that are also suffering. Of course, the context here from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 6 and I'll have to close in verse 6, is really in reference to saved people. Not unsaved people, because unsaved people are unsaved. They're lost. But when we meet saved people, and we do on many occasions, we can relate to what they go through. We can understand some of their sufferings. Go back to Corrie and Betsy Ten Boone, a very interesting couple. They would uh, spend several years in a concentration camp. I think it was called Davenbrook, from memory. Ravensbrook. Ravensbrook, excuse me. Ravensbrook. And Betsy died in that death camp. Her father died in that death camp. Their brother died in that death camp. Their nephew died in that death camp. And December 44, Corrie was accidentally released due to a technical error. Interesting. She wasn't supposed to be released. In fact, nobody got released from such a place. But she was summoned at midnight to the clerk's room. And she was, given, she was given a discharge form. And she was discharged. And off she went back into society. I won't say that everything she taught or preached for the next 40 years, she made a good old age, was completely correct. She may have been ecumenical. She may have been into this or that. I don't know. I seem to recall reading that she believed you could lose your salvation I'm afraid most Christians do believe that. But when it came to her service, when it came to her sufferings, when it came to her sacrifice in a concentration camp with hundreds, if not thousands of women, they shine like a light in a dark place. And I don't know how I would have handled such an environment. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how I would have come across in such an environment. They preached. They got people saved. They led people to the Lord and made a difference in a very dark place. But what a price to pay. Saving Jews, probably in the dozens, getting children out of Holland, working very closely with the underground, which I wouldn't necessarily say I agree with, because the underground in Holland and France and other parts of Europe would kill people. They would blow up German uh, transportation. They would kill uh, German soldiers. In fact, the British Secret Service uh, oversaw an operation to try and kill Heydrich. And they bodged it. He didn't die straight away. And when he did die, the repercussions were enormous. I mean, the Germans rounded up 
hundreds of people, maybe a few thousand, in a village outside of Prague. I forget what the name of it was uh, called. Lidici. Lidici, thank you. And they just gunned people down. Ask yourself, was it worth it? I would say no. I personally wouldn't want to be involved with someone's death, directly or indirectly. But I wasn't living in Holland in the 1930s. I wasn't in a death camp in the 1940s. On top of that, Corrie's faith was tested many a time. There are uh, scenes in this almost two-and-a-half-hour film where she's really battling her doubts, her uh, worries. And Betsy, her sister, had to hold her up. Betsy was a star. Betsy was the strongest of the two. And like I say, they were two very interesting women to observe. And I look forward to meeting especially Betsy when I get to heaven. But service, sacrifice, sufferings, someone like Brainard, someone like Little, someone like Ten Boone. They really set the pace. And ultimately, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, would suffer like no one has ever suffered. And if you want to speak about someone, if you want to brag about someone, if you want to really let someone shine, speak about Jesus. Never mind Muhammad, never mind Joseph Smith, never mind Rutherford or the Pope or Mary or myself or yourself. Just talk about Jesus. If we experience a fraction of what he experienced on this earth, praise the Lord. And I think for most of us living in the West, we're too comfortable. I think for most of us living in the West, we are very ingrained into society. And for most of us, when we get to the judgment seats of the Lord, we'll have almost nothing awaiting us. Thankfully, not in reference to our salvation that was purchased at Calvary, but when it comes to the judgment seats of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when it comes to how much service we gave the Saviour, how many times we suffered for the Saviour, when it comes to how much sacrifice we gave to the Saviour, it will be a completely different ballgame altogether. So I'll close it there, and God willing, pick it up next week in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. So we are working our way through 2 Corinthians, and I've chosen three words to sum up this epistle. Service, sufferings, sacrifice, or sacrifice, suffering, service. And I'll give you three uh, parts of the New Testament to look at in your own ledger. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Luke 10, 30 to 37, and Luke 11, 5, verse 8. And the more you read 2 Corinthians, the more you realize just what sort of suffering awaits those of us which are saved. Last week, we got up to verse 6, and I just want to spend a few moments, if I may, just adding some additional thoughts to what we looked at last Sunday. From chapter 1, verse 1, the word saints appears, and of course you know, if you've been saved for any length of time, that the Lord made you a saint, not a church. A church, whether Catholic, Protestant, Greek, or Russian Orthodox, cannot make anyone a saint. The moment a sinner believes in the Saviour, he slash she automatically becomes a saint. Also, Timothy is referred to as a brother. So there are no fathers, there are no mothers in Scripture, meaning this. There are no reverent mothers like nuns, and there are no fathers like parish priests. A man who is saved is called a brother. A woman who is saved is called a sister. No fathers, no mothers, just brother such and such or sister such and such. Also from chapter 1, verse 1, the church of God is mentioned, being the body of Christ, not a denomination. It's very important that we get this clear. 
There are no denominations in the New Testament. If a man or woman is saved, whether wherever he or she lives in the world, they are in the body of Christ. So keep one one in mind concerning saints and one one in mind concerning church of God. Also from one two, Paul is addressing this epistle to save people. He mentions grace, meaning salvation, and he mentions peace, meaning no hell. This is a great epistle to read for so many reasons. Number one, it deals with the work of the minister, the preacher, the evangelist. Number two, it deals with the two natures of the believer. And yes, every believer has an old nature. The greatest book to read, if you want more information about the two natures of the believer, would be David Brainard's Life and Diary, written by Jonathan Edwards, which was going to be his uh, father-in-law. He had planned to marry Edward's daughter, but that book, that diary, which was never meant for publication, incidentally, details the life of the believer, the two natures of the believer. So just a bit more background to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This group of men and women living in uh, modern day Greece were carnal. They were a carnal church. They were easily swayed by false teachers and also enemies of the cross from outside of the church. These false teachers were constantly undermining Paul's apostolic authority. They believed that he was only in it for the money. They believed he was only in it for fame, for power, and of course that is deadly. And the verses to look at in your own ledger to get some more information to this will be chapter 7, verse 2 to 3, chapter 12, verse 15 to 17, chapter 13, verse 2 to 3, and especially verse 10 from chapter 13. Of course, nothing could have been further from the truth. Paul was a real trooper, like we say. He lived by example. He wasn't a hypocrite. And yes, he too had an old nature. Uh, look at uh, Romans 7 sometime and Philippians chapter 3. So keep that in mind as we go through the next probably 26 weeks, looking at Second Corinthians, very much a neglected epistle. And I will be honest and say that in all of my 15 years as a saved sinner, I have deliberately uh, avoided this epistle because I don't quite understand it. Like I said last week, it's difficult to comprehend. In fact, I gave that scripture from uh, the Apostle Peter who made the case uh, in Second uh, Peter three fourteen to 16. Now he too struggled with some of Paul's statements. So we are on I guess, good ground, can I say? You know, we're in good company when it comes to trying to comprehend this very deep epistle. So, one, uh, one more time, like I say, we arrived at verse 6 last time from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. And I hope of you are steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings so shall you be also of the consolation. So a man gets saved, he starts off with the Lord, or a woman gets saved, she starts off with the Lord, and she's going to hit the buffers, she's going to have pushback, she's going to have trouble. And this is why it's sometimes beneficial to have people to fall back on. And I'll come back and further elaborate that in a moment. Our hope of you is steadfast, like solid, like unwavering, like we are here for the long term, we will go through the same sufferings that you go through. We'll get saved as a group, perhaps. We'll worship the Lord as a group, perhaps. And we will die as a group for the Lord as well. 
Today they call that bonding. And I remember some years ago, I got an email from one of my directors at a company that I used to work at. And the email was along the lines of, we want to, as a company, spend some time bonding. We want to go out at the weekends and do some bowling. We want to go out drinking at the weekend and bond. And I thought, I've got no interest whatsoever in bonding with unsaved people. And yet I knew what they were trying to do. They wanted to bring us together as a unit. And some companies go paintballing at the weekend and you have the directors against the staff or the staff against the directors and they fire paint at each other or they go uh, sailing or they go climbing. They do activities, group activities. It's to bond. It's to be able to trust one another. In fact, I've seen some very odd documentaries over the years. I remember one documentary I watched many years ago of a group that went out into the mountains somewhere in the UK and one of the exercises that they were given by this group that were overseeing this bonding exercise were that they were to fall back blindfolded and be caught by their staff. They had to put their trust in their fellow colleagues. It's all about bonding, you see. And here, Paul, a saved Jew, of course, 25, perhaps 30 years, is writing to men and women in Corinth, uh, modern-day Greece, carnal people, very much enjoying the flesh, and he wants them to know that their hope is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so they too will have to suffer, it comes automatically once you are born again, so shall ye be also of the consolation. In other words, you will be able to further help others down the line. And if I was to try and sum up most of the emails that I've received over the past 15 years, I would say that 9 out of 10 of the emails that I receive are simply from people wanting reassurance, like, am I really saved? Am I accepted by the Lord? People don't email me about the Trinity. People don't email me about the deity of Christ. People don't email me about the Bible issue. And yes, of course, we get emails about those subjects. But 9 out of 10 of the emails that we have received over the past 15 years have been simply to be reassured. They want a spiritual cuddle, if you will. And here, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that what they will go through will be to the benefit of others as well. What do they say? No man is an island. There is some truth in that. And that's why we go through what we go through. So we can A, grow as Christians, B, appreciate the sufferings that our Savior went through, and C, to be able to reach out to other people, to be able to say, I understand what you are going through. Look at verse 8, please. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, though we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Verse 8, for we were not brethren. Once again, he is addressing this to A, save people, but B, brethren, like elders of this particular group of people. There's no one man minister. For we were not brethren. Have you ignorance of our trouble which came to us in Asia, like modern day Europe? that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Turn to Acts chapter 19. What is he speaking about? 
Well, Paul was very much a man on a mission, and if you give him 14 epistles, and I worked this out this morning, that would work out to be over 35-year ministry, 0.4 of a book. So he wrote, if you will, a quarter of a book every year, over 35 years of ministry. He wasn't writing theological books. He wasn't writing uh, dissertations. He wasn't writing reference Bibles. And now I don't have anything against such uh, materials being produced. But my point is this. He was a man out and about on the highways, in the highways, on the streets. And over 35 years, he would write 14 epistles, which if you divide, you come to 0.4 of an epistle per year. Acts 19, Acts 19, look at verse 21, please. After these things were ended, poor purpose and the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Peter never made it to Rome. A book came out back in the 1950s by two Jesuits who very clearly made the case that Peter died probably in Jerusalem. Peter didn't make it to Rome. And of course, the Vatican jumped on that book, now long out of print. And that was done on orders of Pius XII. But the perpetual lie continues to go around that Peter made it to Rome, was made bishop of Rome, and therefore was the first pope. Somewhat of a joke, I know. But here, Paul has purposed in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia being the Balkans, Macedonia being in Europe, so he can get up to Jerusalem to keep the feast days because he was a Jew. 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. He will send an advanced party. He will send Timothy, referred to as a brother, 2 Corinthians 1 1. And Erastus, like an advanced party, and he will sit back. He will remain in Asia, again being Europe for a season. 23, in the same time there rose no small stir about that way. That way being the way, a term for the early church. 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith which made silver shrines for Dana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. If you look at the Catholic Church today, it's probably fair to say that the number one income is down to statues, is down to rosary beads, is down to indulgences. And if you know anything about the Catholic Church, you know that Catholics are very much of the belief that they need to keep praying for their dead. You never pray enough for your dead. And you have to pay your priest to say masses for your dead relatives. Yes, they will say masses for free, of course, but it helps, quote unquote, if you pay a parish priest to say a mass for your dead loved ones. And here you've got silver shrines, 24, for Diana. So you think of Mary, you think of the so-called Queen of Heaven, you think of statues, you think of Lourdes, you think of Fatima, you think of Medjugorje, you think of the woman that they worship, the cults of the dead woman. And here you've got Diana being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this female goddess making her craftsmen a lot of money. And as a result, they don't like the idea of Paul preaching against such because it's bad for business. 25 again. 
whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. So Paul is bad for business. Paul has got a big mouth, as they say, and Paul isn't ecumenical. Paul wants people to repent. Paul doesn't say, sit tight, you're good as you are. Paul would call a man to repent. Paul was very much a believer that outside of Jesus Christ, no one or anyone could be saved. And that's why they wanted to silence him. In fact, Paul's main enemies, if the truth be known, were his fellow Jews. Not so much the Gentiles, but fellow Jews. And I guess it's like this, a Catholic priest get saved, say, in Italy or France or Spain, Catholic countries, of course, and he starts to preach the gospel. And sooner or later, they get fed up with it. They turn against him. They try and silence him. And when that fails, they start to become violent to him in a physical sense. And it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to suggest that they may even try and bump him off, especially during the day, not so much now because of the ecumenical movement, but it wouldn't surprise me if priests that have got saved have been bumped off. Paul was assaulted on many occasions, which feeds into my last message that I mentioned about self-defense. And Christians who go on the streets and preach the gospel can, of course, defend themselves, but not with weapons, you understand. You just simply walk away from such a situation or put your hands up if you need to stop the blows from coming. But the point that I wanted to make during my last message, is concerning Christian service, Christian sacrifice, Christian um, sufferings, if you will, not in reference to uh, protecting your home life or protecting your family, so on and so forth. Look at verse 26 from Acts 19. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands, out goes the mass, out goes transubstantiation, of course, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshippeth. Shut that man up. Like I say, he's bad for business. He's shooting his mouth off. He's making the case that Gods are not made with hands, which is absolutely the case, going back to the fallacious belief that the priest can bring Jesus, quote-unquote, down from heaven, like uh, 365 days of the year, and crucify him afresh. It's a joke. It's also a very dangerous belief. 28. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Mary, the Queen of Heaven. We worship Mary, the Queen of Heaven. You want to have your prayers answered, go through the mother of God. That's what they say. The mother of God has a hotline to heaven, which goes back to the statement made by a preacher many years ago that we don't need the keys to get into heaven. We have the door. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter two, we are already in heaven. Look at verse 30, please. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. Don't go in, Paul. If you go in, they will kill you. They will tear you to shreds. They will rip you to pieces. And yet Paul, not overly concerned. What would he say? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. 31. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theatre. Now they are begging him not to go in. 32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another. 
for the assembly were confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 1. So a bit of background as to Paul and his ministry and his sufferings. And if you speak to people that believe in the scriptures, that call themselves Pauline Christians, that sounds very good. And of course, his epistles are written to the church. No doubt about that. But when it comes to suffering for the Lord, how many of such people, and I include myself, come anywhere near the sort of sufferings that Paul would go through on a regular basis? And I think if the truth be known, very few of us, and I'm speaking about those in the UK, 2 Corinthians 1.8, let's look at this again. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, Acts 19.21-32, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. They were worn down on the cusp of perhaps throwing in the towel, but not quite, more in reference to not able to get any satisfaction from life. They were very much up against it. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, absolutely, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. Such a powerful scripture. So you find yourself in a situation, it could be very difficult, it could be very complicated, it could be very painful, and you have to abandon all hope in yourself and put your faith and trust in Almighty God, who is able to raise the dead. Look at verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So it's like this. You say this. I am saved. Number one. I am being saved. Number two. I will be saved. Number three. Which goes back to sanctification. You see there are three parts to your salvation. Yes it's true that when you believe on Christ you are justified That's great news, which means you've been declared not guilty, or even better than that, you've been declared innocent, which of course you're not, but you've been declared free. Going back to already saved, grace being dispensed, and now you have peace with God. But here, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death. Physically speaking, of course, he was almost going to be killed, but spiritually, concerning sanctification and doth deliver like every day of the week in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us when we get into eternity he also helping together by prayer for us interceding that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons thanks may be given by many on our behalf so you've got people praying for paul and co you've got paul and co praying for many The early church, like I say, was a community. Most of the men and women that got saved in the first century paid a huge price to follow the Lamb. Most of the men and women that got saved in the first century left their friends and family behind. And like I've been saying for years now, if you don't leave them behind, they will soon leave you behind. But the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to 13 is about suffering, service, sacrifice. It's going to cost you something if you are saved. It may not be on a grand scale. You may uh, scrape through life without many trials and tribulations and get to the judgment seat and see fellow brothers, fellow sisters who really went through it. In fact, I can recall a couple 
that got married late in life, a Protestant couple, and they had a child. It may have been a boy or a girl, I can't remember. And this Protestant couple, like I say, married late in life, had a child late in life, gave birth to a Down syndrome child. And the child obviously was uh, a difficult child, and yet this child was greatly loved. And maybe seven, eight years into this young child's life, it became sick, it became ill. Many trips to the hospital, and this Protestant couple, maybe saved, I don't know, were spending a lot of time at the hospital with this sick Down syndrome child. And around the age of 10, 11, no later than 15, this child died. And they buried the child. And I'm sure if you were to sit down with this couple and say, do you regret having your child? They would say, absolutely not. We loved our child to bits. And I can believe that, of course. But they suffered. They suffered with a sick child. They suffered day and night with that child needing medical care. And that child never grew up. That child never had a job. That child never got married. That child never had children. And that couple have now reached the age where they can't have any more children and will never become grandparents. I remember uh, before I was saved having a friend of mine who had been to the foster system and he too had parents that gave birth to him late in life and he was a good friend of mine and yet he was a very troubled chap because like I say his parents number one had him late in life, number two were dysfunctional, number three were unable to raise him, they couldn't handle him. And therefore he was put into foster care and he went from home to home. And yet, I have to say to his credit, he was pretty well grounded. And yet, in spite of that, he was the sort of child who felt unloved, who felt unwanted. And I met his mother once and I met his father once. Nice people, never married as far as I can recall. And yet they were unable to give him the home that he wanted. And he was passed from home to home. And I would look at him and think to myself how blessed I was to have good parents, to have been raised in a good, loving family. And yet this friend of mine, good friend of mine, didn't have that sort of an upbringing, passed from house to house. And when he turned 16, in fact, make that 18, he was pretty much kicked out into society. He was too old to stay with his foster parents. So they put him into a council house. He wasn't yet working. And he really struggled. He struggled with the bills. He struggled with living. And I used to go in and see him every so often, and he got involved with the wrong type of crowd. And I remember going around to see him one evening. I wasn't yet saved, and he had six or seven people in his flat getting up to no good. And I can see him now. He was very tearful, and he said to me, James, get rid of this crowd, please. And I walked into his flat, and I said, get out, all of you. And they were sitting around drinking, smoking. His flat was like a tip. It was completely messed up. The walls were filthy, and I can still see it now, people sitting around treating us flat like a dump. And I said, get out, and I kicked them all out, and he thanked me for it. And a week later, they were back, and they trashed his flat again. And that went on for maybe two or three years. That's a picture of suffering. Now, my friend wasn't saved, and when I got saved, I wrote to him, and I wrote to many people that I had once known, in fact, I drove to see him. I felt I should go and see him. And I knocked on his door. And at the time, he was staying with a couple, a family. Islamic, I seem to recall. And he came down to see me, looking somewhat sheepish. And I said to him, uh, by the way, I'm now born again. By the way, here's a letter explaining my conversion to you. And by the way, 
I'm going to be moving soon to Lancashire. And I spent an hour witnessing to him, trying to explain the gospel to him, also trying to make amends with him. I hadn't always been the best friend or one of his best friends, if the truth be known. And I could see I was going nowhere with him. His eyes were glazing over. He wasn't interested in the gospel. And he went to a Catholic school like me. He was raised a Catholic like I was. And yet when it came to Jesus, when it came to Christ, when it came to salvation, he wasn't interested. And I did the best I could with him. And I turned around and got in my car and drove off and never saw him again. Quick footnote. Five years later, six years later, I got a text from a family member telling me to put on the television. And I did. And I saw this old friend of mine, this old school friend of mine on television, on one of these uh, uh, chat shows, one of these uh, grubby shows, one of these programs where they have people that are just filthy, living like the world. And I watched 10 minutes. I couldn't watch anymore. And this old friend of mine was on this television show and he was with a woman and he was living with this woman and she had grown up children. And I was horrified to see this friend that I'd gone to school with on this television show, a very well-known show, which I shan't name, washing his dirty laundry in public. And I thought, how sad. But of course, my mind went back to his upbringing. My mind went back to the fact that he had suffered, that his parents didn't want him, couldn't have him, and he was put into care homes, so on and so forth. And it would have been great had he got saved, but he didn't get saved. And as far as I know... All these years on, he is still unsaved. But the context of Second Corinthians is worshipping the Lord, serving the Lord, and suffering for the Lord as a group, and being able to understand what we go through as a group. And I meet people in the streets, sometimes they are saved, sometimes they're not saved. And I have people approach me, and Patrick too, and they tell you all sorts of things. And sometimes, sometimes I can relate to what they have been through. And sometimes I can offer them advice and support. And sometimes I'm unable to do so. But I will still pray with them. And I'll pray for them. In fact, if people say to me on the street, God bless you, I will take it. I'll always take a blessing from somebody. In fact, I think it was just two days ago, Patrick was in town. And he saw a woman that we used to speak to about the Lord. She's 89. She's an Anglican. And we haven't seen her in around a year. And she's a nice old woman, kind of religious, perhaps born again, I don't know. But she said to Patrick how she hadn't seen us for a while. And she said to Patrick how she prays for us every night. And I thought, that's good news. I like to hear that. And, you know, when someone says they pray for me, I will gratefully receive that. And I'll pray for them as well. Is she saved? I don't know. I've told her over the years about the Church of England. I've tried to explain to her the problems with the Church of England. On top of that, she's what you call a Eucharistic minister. She gives communion to people in her church. She could be saved. I don't know. She may have strayed into that system like Brainard did into the Puritan system and hasn't come out, remains in such a system. But my point is this. She prays for me and I would pray for her. You might pray for me, I might pray for you. In fact, I pray for people every day of the week. One of our brothers had an operation last year. He knows who he is, and we were praying for him. 
And he said to us, along with his wife, that he felt greatly encouraged. He felt very uh, content. He felt very safe about going into his operation, a very serious operation. And we were praying for him throughout the operation, well, before, throughout and after. And praise the Lord, he made a full recovery. That's what this is all about. It's about interceding for one another. It's about putting yourself out for one another. It's not about just doing your own thing. Look at verse 12, please, from Second Corinthians chapter 1. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you would. So, they thought that Paul perhaps wasn't the real thing. And they thought that perhaps Paul was in it for the money. And we would have the same opinion concerning these televangelists. And of course, you know who they are. They appear to be the real thing and they deceive many people. And yet, if you break down what they preach, if you examine how they live, if you observe what they do, it's all a show. They are great actors. And throughout this epistle, Paul will have to reaffirm his credentials. He will have to reaffirm his integrity, which is very sad. It wasn't necessary. And again, if you get a chance, look at chapter 7, verses 2 to 3. If you get a chance, look at chapter 12, verse 15 to 17. If you get a chance, look at chapter 13, 2 to 3. And if you get a chance, look at chapter 13, verse 10. I don't think Peter or John were scrutinized as much as Paul was. I think Paul was scrutinized right down to who is he? What's he all about? Why does he do what he does? And they would uh, question his integrity, those in the church of Corinth. You had groups within groups in Corinth that were muddying the waters. And they are spoken of from 1 Corinthians, like the household of Chloe, like Crispus and Gaius. And you've got people that are jockeying for positions. For our rejoicing is this, the testament of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, we're not like these kind of uh, showy preachers which run around on stage or like to use a lot of music throughout their services, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you would. So we are saved, that's what he's saying, we are just like you, we're not in this for the money, we're not in this for power, we're not in this for prestige. We will find ourselves almost being starved to death. Go back to First Corinthians sometime. He says we are buffeted. We are almost like the scum of the world. We are living hand to mouth. He wasn't a wealthy man. And he wants them to know that he's not out. He's not out to deceive them. He's very much living by example. And I say again that most people in Britain, most saved people in Britain, all 5,000 of us, if we were to examine... The Apostle Paul, I mean, really examine him down to every aspect of his life, ministry and subsequent death. We'd have to say that we don't come anywhere near the example that he set. In fact, what he forgot, we will never know. But here's a quick footnote when it comes to preaching. And Paul was a preacher, 35 years of service, producing 14 epistles, crisscrossing Europe almost drowning en route to Rome, preaching every day of the week. He really preached a message. In fact, it says over in Acts, 
20, I think it is from memory, that on one occasion he preached all night. A young boy fell asleep because Paul preached all night. And I remember hearing a sermon some years ago which made the case that a typical sermon of 30 minutes, if you knock off the music, if you knock off the commercials, if you knock off the stories, a typical 30-minute service gives you around 12 minutes of Bible. I have observed over the years preachers in Britain and America when they put their stuff out on the radio, runs to around 30 minutes, take the music out, take the commercials out, take the stories out. You get around 12 minutes of Bible. 14 minutes, if you're lucky. And for me, that's a great travesty. But you couldn't have accused Paul of doing such. He was a preacher. He was a minister. He was an evangelist. On top of that, he wouldn't go from church to church selling his merchandise like most do today. He would go into the streets, preach the gospel, and then get people saved and gather such people into his local uh, assemblies, so on and so forth. So I will close it there in verse 12. And this will be a three-part study looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And again, this will be about service. This will be about sacrifice. This will be about sufferings. And if you are going through it at the moment, if you feel pressed down at the moment, if you feel like you're really struggling, always keep Romans 8.28 in mind. Also keep 1 Corinthians 10 in mind. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 10 very quickly. 1 Corinthians 10. This has just come to my mind. Um, 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 13, if you will, please. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. He won't test you. He won't try you above what you can deal with. He will allow you to go through all sorts of situations, but they won't break you. You will survive. Abraham survived his almost sacrifice of Isaac. Peter would deny the Lord three times. He was tried and tested and unlike Judas, wouldn't take his own life. So whatever you go through, always keep 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in mind. It may seem bad for the here and now, but if you're saved, he promised you from the book of Hebrews that he would never leave you nor forsake you. And he promised you that if you are his, you are forever his. And whatever you go through, you will always find a way through it because he is with you and he will go through the valley of the shadow of death with you. Psalm 23, because he loves you, because he bled for you, because he died for you and was resurrected for you. And that's great news indeed. So I'll close it there and pick it up next week from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13. So this will be part three, looking at Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. And like I said from the beginning of this three-part message, three words will sum up this entire epistle, service, suffering, sacrifice. And if you can, take the time out to visit sick people in hospitals or make time for lonely people. Maybe consider inviting neighbors over for a meal or a coffee. There's always something you can do to reach out to people. You don't have to go onto the streets and uh, get a sign up and start preaching to people, although I'm very much in favor of that. From chapter 1, verse 1, like I said last week, and I want to repeat myself again, the believer is called a saint, 
We are all automatically saints. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul addresses this epistle to the church of God, being a term for the body of Christ, not a denomination. Chapter 1, verse 2, you are already saved, and that feeds into grace, being salvation, and that feeds into peace. Peace with God via the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 8, he addresses this epistle to the brethren, picturing saved people and also picturing leaders of a typical first century church. But the background to Second Corinthians, especially chapter 11, would be Paul's continual battle. He was fighting false apostles who were trying to get people to follow them. They were trying to draw disciples unto themselves, which is what a denomination is all about. Paul was being smeared, and along the way they were dubbing him as somehow being unbalanced, inconsistent, and incompetent. And on top of that, they were suggesting that he was somehow untrustworthy. Now this goes back to the two natures of the believer, and if you will, please go to the epistle of James. I want to look at some additional verses this morning before we get to the remainder of... uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you go to James chapter 3, he speaks about what it's like to be saved, what it's like to have two natures. Unlike the Old Testament crowd, they had no two natures. They only had their old nature. And yes, they were saved by grace, but they didn't have the new nature to counter the old. James chapter 3, James chapter 3. Look at verse 5, please. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Your tongue, on the one hand, can save you when you confess Christ before men, and your tongue can condemn you when you deny Christ before men. Look at verse 6, please. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. You should be praying, and yet you find time to gossip. You should be worshipping, and yet you find time to defile your brother or sister in the Lord. Look at seven. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. He is speaking to saved people. He's not speaking to unsaved people. And as a quick footnote, this epistle was written after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, not before. I get people leaving comments on my uh, study, looking at the epistle of James, which I did some years ago. And some people think that James was written before Christ died, which is ridiculous. Every book in the New Testament was written after Christ died. But here, James, quite possibly the Lord's half-brother, makes it very clear that the tongue cannot be tamed. Unlike birds, unlike beasts, verse 7, unlike serpents, unlike those in the sea, when it comes to mankind, our tongues, and I include myself, are full of deadly poison. Going back to Jeremiah, saying that your heart is no good. Look at nine. Therewith 
bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Mankind is made in the image of God, and one moment we are blessing the Lord, verse 9, and the next minute we are running people down with our mouths, with our tongues, which goes back to our hearts being no good. 10. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So it's quite clear to me that one moment you are worshipping the Lord, and the next minute you are cutting your brother or sister down through your tongue, through your poisonous tongue. Go back to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and like I said, this will be part three, and from our last study, we arrived at verse 12, and I'll read it again. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you would. We were saved out of the world. We are now, number one, apostles of the Lord. Number two, ambassadors of the Lord. And number three, children of the Lord. But from verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul had the sentence of death in himself and his colleagues. He thought that they were about to be put to death. He thought that capital punishment would await him. And he knew that he couldn't help himself. He knew that if he didn't trust in the Lord, if he didn't throw himself totally on the mercy of the Lord, he couldn't make it, and therefore he would pray, he would pray, and he would pray. But it goes back to the fact that we will suffer for the Lord. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you will suffer for the Lord, and sometimes you'll be ridiculed for the Lord. Just yesterday, I was in town giving out tracts, and these two people came over to me, a man and a woman, socialists, and they were promoting their party, and they were hoping that I would vote for their party. They were of the belief that their party was the best thing since sliced bread. And they wanted me to endorse their leader. And I said to them, well, number one, I've been following politics for over 20 years. Number two, politicians lie. They all lie. And number three, you can't trust them. They promise you the world. And when they get into government, they give you nothing. And this couple, trying to uh, convince me, trying to uh, twist my arm, as it were, said to me, but don't you want world peace? Our leader, we believe, will give us world peace. And I thought, how naive can you be? The lady was probably in her mid-30s. The man was probably in his mid-40s. And here am I giving out tracts. It's pouring with rain. It's cold. It's very stormy. And yet I got this couple trying to batter me up. I've got this couple trying to get me to endorse their political party. And I said, well, the scripture says that there'll never be peace until Christ returns. And straight away, this man and this woman started laughing at me, started mocking my statements. And I thought, had I been a Muslim and had I said that, they wouldn't have dared laugh at me. They wouldn't have dared made fun of my statements. And they started to uh, speak about how ridiculous such a statement was and I thought but who's really being ridiculous now you believe that politicians are going to help you out you think that your leader is going to make this a better world and they turn around and walked off laughing hysterically 
Now, for maybe three or four seconds, no more than five, I was pretty angry. The old nature, you see. Nobody wants to be made to look a fool on the streets. On top of that, people were able to overhear this conversation, and this couple walked away, laughing very loudly, not because they thought it was a great joke, but because they were probably also somewhat embarrassed because I did clip their wings slightly. And I thought, I hope they come back and I'll have another crack at them. Well, they came back 20 minutes later, walked straight past me, and the man was reciting his leader's name like a football team. I thought, how ridiculous. But the point is this. For a minute, two minutes, I was made a fool for Christ's sake, which is found very clearly in 1 Corinthians. Paul would say that we are fools for Christ's sake. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be considered a fool for the Lord. And I hope that maybe one of those two people went home that day and thought about what I said to them. I'm pretty sure that nobody else was on the street yesterday giving out tracts. And I don't believe anybody else would have made such a statement. In fact, as we were packing up and going home, it was very stormy, like I say, heavy rain, bit of thunder in the background. This uh, black church had just arrived and they got their PA system out. And I looked at this uh, group, maybe three or four people in their early 20s. And I said to myself and also Patrick, I bet, I bet they don't preach the gospel. I bet they put on a show, quote unquote. And as we walked past them, I went into the shop to get some bits. And as I came out, they were playing music, very soft music. And I said to Patrick, that won't save anyone. Why not air the Bible? Why not broadcast some scripture readings? This PA system, very powerful. If the guy wanted to, the entire town could have heard him. And yet he wasn't uh, broadcasting his music particularly loudly, somewhat softly. But I thought, what a missed opportunity. Why not air the scripture? Why not uh, allow people to hear the word of God? Go to First Peter, please. So a tiny, tiny bit of suffering concerning yours truly. A tiny, tiny... A level of uh, ridicule concerning yours truly. But the point is this. You will suffer. It could be on a small scale like yesterday afternoon. It could be on a larger scale. First Peter. First Peter. First uh, Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 6 please. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season. If need be ye are in heaviness. Through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Ye are in heaviness, verse 6, through manifold temptations, manifold trials and tribulations. You're really going through it. The Lord is working you over, and due to his permissive will, he will allow the devil to work you over. And here, Peter is writing to saved men and women, Jewish and Gentile, and yet for the most part probably Jewish believers. And he wants them to know from verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. How about that? That be tried with fire, not in a physical sense, and yet partly picturing the uh, burning up of your works at the judgment seats of the Lord, First Corinthians chapter 3 might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 2. So you will 
have your faith tested, you will go through trials and tribulations to, number one, glorify the Lord. Number two, to mold you into something that the Lord can really use. Chapter two, chapter two. Look at verse uh, 20, please. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer it, you take it patiently, that is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. 22. Who did no sin, unlike you and I, neither was guile, deceit, found in his mouth. 21. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. Now, you can't live like him, of course not, but you can follow him concerning his humility. You can follow him concerning his self-sacrifice. You can follow him concerning his mercy. 23. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Don't retaliate with your tongue. Going back to James chapter 3. If somebody ridicules you on the street like they did to me yesterday, take it. When he suffered, he threatened not. Don't wave your fists about. Don't try and get even. You were told over in Matthew chapter 5 that if somebody was to smite you on the face, like smack you across the face, you are to take it but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He was in complete submission to his father. 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Substitution of atonement and also the term uh, dying on a tree denotes a cursed death. He died a cursed death for our sins. That we being dead to sins in a spiritual sense, the old man is very much alive and kicking, hence why you were told to bring every thought captive to the saviour should live unto righteousness. Live for him, not yourself, by whose stripes you were healed. So he has provided an atonement for you. You are redeemed, and yet at the same time you have to live a certain way. And yet it's mandatory. Go to chapter 3, chapter 3, chapter 3. Uh, look at verse 14, if you will. But, and if you suffer righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of the terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. If you are flawless, not sinless, but if you are flawless, if you are righteous, if you are upright, if you are walking in the spirit and just you can do that. If you are worshipping the Lord in spirit and truth, then you can silence your critics. You can do great things for the Lord. And sometimes just standing on a street corner and holding your tongue speaks volumes. Yes, there was a part of me which wanted to really take this couple to task. And there was a part of me which hoped they would come back around the corner some minutes later and we could go uh, into round two. But it wasn't to be. And thankfully, when they came around the corner, 
They walked straight past me, no, made no eye contact with me, and I was able to uh, refrain my tongue. I didn't rise to the bait. But here, chapter 3, 14, down to 16, but, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, going back to the, the uh, Beatitudes from the Gospel of Matthew, happy are ye, blessed are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, don't panic, if the wheels start to come off, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. He's already in your body, so now sanctify him, make him very much at home, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready to tell a person why you are saved and why they must be saved as well. Having a good conscience, 16, that whereas they speak evil of you, they may try and smear you like they would do Paul. They may try and uh, undermine you like they would do Paul as of evildoers, that they may be ashamed, that falsely accuse your good conversation, your relationship in Christ. So this is how it's going to go. You live for the Lord, they will attack you. Go to chapter four. You try and speak up for the Lord, they will try and undermine you. There's no way around it. Chapter 4, chapter 4, look at verse 12, please. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Don't think something unusual has taken place if you are being buffeted, if you are losing sleep, perhaps, or if you have lost your appetite, perhaps, or if you feel overly stressed or you can't quite concentrate, maybe you are unable to read as much scripture as you normally do. Don't think it's some strange and fiery trial, verse 12, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory shall be revealed, second coming, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy, feeding into the judgment seats of the Lord. 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. They mocked me yesterday. They made fun of me yesterday. They spoke to me in a way that they wouldn't speak to anyone else. And I'll tell you something else. Had I been in any doubt as to which party I would endorse, they lost my vote forever. There's just no way in a million years I would vote for such a socialist setup. And I put some of my objections forward as to why I couldn't endorse their party or their leader. And within a split second, they were coming back at me, trying to refute my claims against their party and their leader. But it's like this. Do you think their leader would take time out for them? Their leader receives a six-figure salary. Their leader lives in a nice property. He has more than one property. Their leader, incidentally, has never had a job in his life. And yet this couple, working class, I would suggest, not receiving a six-figure salary, not even near, are putting their weekend aside to go out canvassing for such a person. Happy are ye... If ye be approached for the name of Christ, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Absolutely, I was as cool 
as a cucumber. On their part, he's evil spoken of. They mocked the Lord. They mocked what I was telling them. But on your part, my part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Which suggests to me that a saved person can commit murder, perhaps physically, not just spiritually, can be a thief, certainly physically, not just spiritually, and can also be guilty of being an evildoer, like a busybody, like somebody gossiping, like somebody cutting a brother or sister down with their tongue, going back to James chapter 3. Look at verse 16. For if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. That's the key. The key is to suffer as a Christian, like on the street corner, like in your place of employment, like in your street. You take a stand for the Lord. You don't get caught up with the things of the world and you suffer as a Christian. You don't suffer as a busybody. You don't suffer as a murderer. You don't suffer as a thief. And if you do, you pay the consequences, of course. Go to uh, uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5. In fact, the latter parts of verse 16 quickly. But let him glorify God on this behalf. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed either. I could have taken yesterday's incident very personally. And yet I'm somewhat long in the tooth concerning street work. But I could have been ashamed. In fact, I think it was 18 months ago, we were in town and this group of Marxists arrived, hard left Marxists, like I say, uh, Stalinists, communists, and they were marking up the town with chalk and they had their speakers uh, plugged in and they were booming out loud left-wing music, the old uh, stuff that the Soviet Union would uh, like to rejoice in and uh, Red China. Of course, these people wouldn't last five minutes in North Korea or China or Russia back in the day, but they fit quite nicely. They live quite comfortably in the UK. And we got our banners set up and this crowd walked over to us. They were cursing us. They were cussing us. They were ridiculing us. They were making, quite honestly, bibliophobic remarks about us, which they wouldn't have dared do to Muslims or a minority group. And yet they thought nothing of making fun of us and our stance for the Lord. And I could have been ashamed. We could have been ashamed at being ridiculed in such a public way. And people were walking past, very much aware of what was going on. But we took it on the chin. We took it and it eventually blew over. That sort of suffering, I think, that Peter is referring to. Chapter 5, chapter 5. Look at verse 10, please. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the key. But the God of all grace, verse 10, going back to what Paul would tell you, how he comforts us and everything that we go through so we can comfort others, who hath called us, Unto his eternal glory, your salvation, of course, by Christ Jesus. You can't make it any other way. After that, you have suffered a while. It won't go on forever, which I mentioned last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that whatever temptations come your way, hang in there. The Lord will bring you through it. 
make you perfect in the sense of not double-minded, but in the sense of being uh, aware as to what is going on. Establish, strengthen, settle you. Go back to Second Corinthians, please. So Peter wants you to know that you will suffer. Uh, James warns you that saved people can worship the Lord, pray to the Lord, sing psalms and hymns to the Lord, and then turn around like straight away and start cutting a brother or sister to bits with their tongues. And we've all been guilty of that. I know I've been guilty of that. I know I can be worshiping the Lord. I can be praising the Lord. And straight away, my tongue gets a better of me. And I have to keep my mouth shut sometimes. James would say, be quick to hear and be slow to speak. And yet many times we rush in. Many times we want the last word. And people say that. I know I want to have the last word. Well, maybe keep your mouth shut for a while. When Christ was challenged back in the Gospels, he took it. He didn't slap down the religious elites. And yet when Paul was challenged over an actually apostles, he couldn't hold himself back. He would retaliate. He would call them whitewashed sepulchres, whited walls. He was infuriated with his peers, having the audacity to take him to task. So, yes, Paul is our man, if you will, and yet Christ is our saviour. So we can follow Christ and Paul. But let's try and complete 2 Corinthians chapter 1 if we can. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 13, please. For we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge. And I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. I like verse 13. For we write none other things unto you, like the Pauline epistles, than what you read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. You will acknowledge these unto the end of your lives. You will read what Paul wrote every day of the week. As also ye have acknowledged us in part. They knew that Paul was an apostle. Paul got them saved. Paul was an evangelist. He would have preached to such people in the streets. That we are your rejoicing. Going back to Timothy and Silvanus. Even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In the context concerning the second coming of the Lord and also concerning the judgment seat of the Lord. 15. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before that you might have a second benefit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. Macedonia being the Balkans. Macedonia being Europe. And there was a war in the Balkans at the end of the 1990s, there was a guy called uh, Slobodan Milosevic. He was a Serbian man from the Serbian or the Greek Orthodox Church, and he was trying to deal, quote-unquote, with the Islamic problem. Of course, he went slightly overboard, and he killed many people, and therefore NATO decided to launch a full-out war against uh, Serbia, against Milosevic, and that conflict went on for several several weeks and eventually they were able to conclude and complete that campaign that conflict but here Paul wants to bring to the Corinthians a second benefit a second blessing and as he goes up to Macedonia like I say in the Balkans 
he wants to then go via Macedonia towards Judea. Because Paul was a Jew. Paul wanted his Jewish uh, brethren to be saved. And he wanted to reach out to save Jews in Judea. Because the early church were mainly Jewish. And after the early church came to an end, the uh, Jews started to die out. And the Gentiles started to replace them. Look at verse 17, please. When I therefore was thus minded... Did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? He wants to once again reaffirm his credentials. He wants to once again make it very clear that he wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for the power. He wasn't in it for the prestige. He was in it because he was saved. He was in it because he wanted them to rejoice in what Christ had done for him and vicariously what Christ had done for the early church. And that's why we call ourselves Pauline believers. Those of us which are saved, we go to the Pauline epistles for our meat, for our substance. We know that the Gospels, for the most part, are technically under the Old Covenant. That doesn't mean we don't get any good material from the Gospels, but strictly speaking, we go to the Pauline epistles. Look at the latter part of 17 again. Do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. In other words, what I say, I mean. And I mean what I say. I'm not this double-minded man. I'm not mentally unstable. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not some false apostle. The false apostles I mentioned over in uh, chapter 11. Look at 18. But as God is true, our word toward you is not yea and nay. He now cites the Lord. He says, but as God is true, absolutely, our word verbally and written towards you was not yea and nay. We're not double-minded. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He now mentions the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, in the Pauline epistles, when Paul mentions the Lord, he doesn't call him the Son of Man. The Son of Man technically is a messianic, a messianic title, which is found in the uh, Gospels. And I think Peter, or perhaps James, occasionally mentions Christ as the Son of Man. But when Paul mentions Christ, he never refers to him as a Son of Man, always as a Son of God, which you could say feeds into the epistles. For the Son of God, verse 19, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us. He's not preaching himself, he's preaching the Lord. Even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, Silvanus would be the Latin name for Silas and Timotheus. Timothy was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He's preaching a clear message from the Lord. He's not going to waver. He's not going to be double-minded. He wants you to know that God is, number one, part of his uh, ministry, Jesus Christ. Number two is part of who he was and what he was. Look at verse 20, please. For the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Amen being, let it be, all the glory, or unto the glory of God by us. 21. He which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God, who hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. 21. Christ is mentioned. 21. God is mentioned. 22, the Spirit is mentioned. And in just two verses, you've been given the Trinity. 
21 again. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. So God called them, he anointed them, found back in Acts chapter 9, who hath also sealed us, 22, and given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts, like a down payment. If you think that, or if you want to buy something, and you go into a place that is selling what you want, and you haven't got all of the money on you, you leave a deposit. And when you go back later, you pay what is outstanding. Well, what the Lord does to those that believe on his son is he gives you the spirit, like a down payment, earnest payment. And once he does that, you are sealed, verse 22, which if you cross-reference to Ephesians 4.30, you are sealed, you are kept safe, you are preserved unto the day of the Lord Jesus, found here in verse 14, which is where we get the doctrine of eternal security. 23, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet under Corinth. He's now swearing by the Lord, which can be a good thing, and it can also be a bad thing. You shouldn't say, I swear to the Lord, or I swear by God, going back to let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay from verse 17 but as a last resort you may have to cite the lord you may have to turn to the lord you may have to swear by the lord but personally i would advise against it 24 not for that we have dominion over your faith but are helpers of your joy for by faith ye stand we don't have dominion over your faith in fact go to acts chapter 20 we preach the gospel we get people saved, and uh, once they get saved, we come alongside them, and we try and help them out. We don't have dominion over them. In fact, there was a story in the paper this morning that uh, Patrick very kindly sent me of a lady who was raised in the Plymouth Brethren movement back in the 1960s, the exclusive Plymouth Brethren, a hyper-Calvinist group. And I've read uh, her story before. I know all about her accounts, and she was raised back in the 1960s, in this very exclusive group in Brighton, which is now filled with infamy. And as she was growing up in this very strict so-called Christian group, I guess it's fair to say, as far as she would be concerned, it was a cult. They put all sorts of rules and regulations into the mix. They just destroyed her and her family, and I think she's now an atheist. It happens. You mess with somebody who is five, six, seven, eight. That's how young she was. It stays with them for life. And that movement, the exclusive brethren, like I say, hyper-Calvinists, hyper-dispensationalists, not soul winners, not out and about for the Lord, just wanting to wear people down, destroyed her life and her parents' life. At the same time, she has also helped them to destroy her life because she has now become an atheist. She has now turned against whatever light she had, and now she's twice lost. She is the uh, chap or the person mentioned over in the book of Jude, wandering, wells without water, and unless she gets saved, she's lost. So she's gone from one extreme to another. But from Acts chapter 20, Paul picks up this issue of folks trying to draw disciples unto themselves, like the exclusive brethren, perhaps. Acts 20, Acts 20, look at verse 28, please. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
picturing the fact that Christ's blood is divine and also uh, making it very clear that a local fellowship should be run by a group of men. Going back to 2 Corinthians 1.8, like the brethren. And also how the Holy Ghost has made such people overseers, like elders. 29. For I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to come from within, not without. And this group in Brighton, this group of uh, Plymouth brethren, exclusive brethren, were very legalistic. And on top of that, if you were to ask them to explain grace to you, they couldn't do it. They had no concept of grace. They had no concept of the love of God. It was all about rules and regulations. It was all about control. And if you crossed their leaders, you were destroyed. You were expelled. You were frozen out, which is what the JWs do. 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples unto them, or disciples after them, I should say. So the enemy is going to come from within, not without. It's so important that we understand that. And they will speak perverse things, like perhaps you can lose your salvation, like perhaps you need works to be saved, like perhaps give me a wife, or give me a son, or let me rephrase that, uh, give me a wife, give me a husband, give me your money, like the Mormons. To draw away disciples after them. That's what Paul was up against. Paul was up against false apostles, false brethren, trying to undermine him, trying to ridicule him, trying to destroy him, trying to get people away from the Lord and unto themselves. Going back once again to the problem of denominations. 31. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul was, a, uh, was an emotional man. And Paul knew that once he left this world, like Moses would warn the children of Israel, that enemies would come from within and they would destroy, just obliterate the work that he had done. And that's why he wants you to know that if you're not careful, you will potentially become shipwrecked which is what uh, is mentioned very clearly from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And yes, you can be saved and still become shipwrecked. So I think from 2 Corinthians, I go back to 2 Corinthians, and I will just very quickly conclude and wrap up chapter 1, that you've had quite a bit of material. And to my surprise, it's run to three parts. Just 24 verses on the surface. You might think to yourself, there's not much to cover. And yet this epistle is a very deep epistle this epistle is aimed at those in ministry those that go into the streets those that get people saved those that build up people once they get saved this epistle is very much a neglected epistle and the overall theme is going to be service sacrifice and sufferings you're gonna to have to pray for people you're gonna to have to intercede for people in fact, I remember many years ago speaking to a chap on a regular basis that would come over to us, a very mixed up chap, as most of these people are, I'm afraid to say, and he couldn't get the Trinity clear in his mind, and I spent a lot of time, as did some of the others at the time that we were working with, trying to explain, or at least 
outline the Trinity to him, but it went nowhere. And I'll just condense the story very quickly. He became a Muslim, and his friend, his sidekick, who I tried to witness to, is now in a wheelchair. And I see this guy every so often in our town, and I spoke to him first maybe 10 years ago, and I witnessed to him, and it went in one end out the other. His friend, like I say, became a Muslim, and now this chap, I'd say he's in his mid-30s, is now in a wheelchair, going around the town aimlessly, killing time, make it that what you will. On top of that, you will have to pray for people who are going through all sorts of problems, like saved people, like unsaved people. I remember praying for a work colleague's sick mother, and he said to me that his mother was sick, and he said to me that she was in hospital, and I stopped what I was doing, and I prayed silently for his mother. Two days later, I said to him, by the way, how's your mother? And he said to me, she's fine. She's made a full recovery. And I said, praise the Lord. Now, I won't necessarily take the credit for that, but I will say this. Who else is praying for her? Who else do you think would have prayed for his mother, an unsaved woman? Probably no one else. This man was very worldly. His family were very worldly. And yet when he told me that she was sick, I stopped what I was doing and prayed for her. Just for a few seconds. And like I say, by the grace of God, she was able to make a full recovery. So you have to pray for people. You're going to have to intercede for people. You're going to have to suffer. Finally, you found the Trinity in verse 21. Christ, God the Father, and the Spirit of God, verse 22. And as we conclude this entire epistle, the Trinity are found again over in chapter 13. For 24, one last time and I will close. Not for that, we have dominion over your faith. We don't lord it over you. We don't control you. We don't dominate you. But our helpers of your joy, we enjoy what you enjoy. We walk the walk that you walk. We live like you live. For by faith ye stand. For by faith are you saved, and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by faith, and I mean faith, ye stand. Ye stand as far as your salvation is concerned, and you stand as far as your relationship with the Lord is concerned. The Apostle Paul and co. would set a very high uh, bar, if you will. Christ would set the ultimate bar, the ultimate goal, he sets the ultimate uh, route, if you will. His path is a very difficult path, a difficult route to follow. And you follow Christ as well as you can. And you follow Paul and his example as well as you can as well. For by faith ye stand. Faith to be saved. Faith to please the Lord. Faith to worship the Lord. And faith to rejoice in the Lord and help others along the way. And I will leave it there at the end of verse 1. And next week, God willing, pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2.